0: from Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments Part 4 The Way of Salvation Part 4 and Part 1 Faith Question What does God require of us that we may escape His wrath and curse due to us for our sin? Faith in Jesus Christ Repentance unto life with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption. I begin with the first, faith in Jesus Christ, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, Romans 3.25. The great privilege in this text is to have Christ for a propitiation, which is not only to free us from God's wrath, but to ingratiate us into His love and favor. The means of having Christ to be our propitiation is faith in His blood. There is a twofold faith, the faith which is believed, which is the doctrine of faith, and the faith by which we believe, which is the grace of faith. The act of justifying faith lies in recumbency. We rest on Christ alone for salvation. As a man that is ready to drown catches hold on the bough of a tree, so a poor trembling sinner, seeing himself ready to perish, catches hold by faith on Christ, the tree of life, And is saved. The work of faith is by the Holy Spirit. Therefore faith is called the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 Faith does not grow in nature. It is an outlandish plant. A fruit of the Spirit. This grace of faith is the most hallowed possession of the human heart. Of all others the most precious rich faith. And most holy faith. And faith of God's elect. Hence it is called precious Faith in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. As gold is most precious among metals, so is faith among the graces. Faith is the queen of the graces. It is the condition of the gospel. Thy faith hath saved thee, not thy tears, Luke seven fifty. Faith is the vital artery of the soul that animates it. The just shall live by his faith, Habakkuk 2, 4. Though unbelievers breathe, they lack life. Faith, as Clemens Alexandrinus calls it, is a mother grace. It excites and invigorates all the graces. Not a grace stirs till faith sets it to work. Faith sets repentance to work. It is like fire to the still. It sets hope to work. First we believe the promise, then we hope for it. If faith did not feed the lamp of hope with oil, it would soon die. It sets love to work. Faith which worketh by love, Galatians 5 6. Who can believe in the infinite merits of Christ, and his heart not ascend in a fiery chariot of love? It is a catholicon, or a remedy against all troubles, a sheet anchor cast into the sea of God's mercy to keep us from sinking in despair. Other graces have done worthily. Thou, O faith, excellest them all. In heaven, love will be the chief grace, but While we're here, love must give place to faith. Love takes possession of glory, but faith gives a title to it. Love is the crowning grace in heaven, but faith is the conquering grace upon earth. This is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5, 4 Faith carries away the garland from all the other graces. Other graces help to sanctify us, but faith only has the honor to justify us being justified by faith, Romans 5.1. Question, how comes faith to be so precious? Not that there is a more holy quality or has a more worthiness than other graces, but with respect to its object, as it lays hold on Christ the blessed object and fetches in his fullness, John 9.36, faith in itself considered is but the beggar's hand. But as this hand receives the rich alms of Christ's merits, so it is precious, and challenges of superiority over the rest of the graces. Use 1. Of all sins, beware of the rock of unbelief. Take heed, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief. Hebrews 3.12. Men think, as long as they are not drunkards or swearers, it is no great matter to be unbelievers. This is the gospel sin. It dyes your other sins in grain. Firstly, unbelief is a Christ-reproaching sin. It disparages Christ's infinite merit as if it could not save. It makes the wound of sin to be broader than the plaster of Christ's blood. This is a high contempt offered to Christ and is a deeper spear than that which the Jews thrust into his side. Secondly, unbelief is an ungrateful sin. The ungrateful man is to be avoided like a fearful crime. The world herself produces nothing more shameful. Ingratitude is a prodigy of wickedness, and unbelief is being ungrateful for the richest mercy. Suppose a king to redeem a captive should part with his crown of gold, and when he had done this should say to the redeemed man, All I desire of thee in lieu of my kindness is to believe that I love thee. If he should say, No, I do not believe any such thing, that thou carest at all for me, I appeal to you whether this would not be odious ingratitude. So is the case here. God has sent his Son to shed his blood. He requires us only to believe in him, that he is able and willing to save us. No, says unbelief, his blood was not shed for me. I cannot persuade myself that Christ has any purpose of love to me. Is this not horrid ingratitude? This enhances a sin and makes it of a crimson color. Thirdly, unbelief is a leading sin. It is the breeder of sin. As it is said, a life of wickedness has unbelief as its point of origin. Unbelief is a root sin, and the devil labors to water this root that the branches may be fruitful. It breeds hardness of heart, therefore they are put together in Mark chapter 16 verse 14. Christ upbraids them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. Unbelief breeds the stone of the heart. He who believes not in Christ is not affected with his sufferings. He melts not in tears of love. Unbelief freezes the heart. First it defiles and then hardens. Unbelief breeds profaneness. An unbeliever will stick at no sin, neither at false weights nor false oaths. He will swallow down treason. Judas was first an unbeliever and then a traitor. John six sixty four. 64. He who has no faith in his heart will have no fear of God before his eyes. Fourthly, unbelief is a wrath procuring sin. It is an enemy of salvation, according to Bernard. In John 3, verse 18, we read, He is already condemned. Dying so, he is as sure to be condemned as if he were so already. He that believeth not on the Son of God, the wrath of God abideth on him. John 3, He who believes not in the blood of the Lamb must feel the wrath of the Lamb. The Gentiles that believe not in Christ will be damned, as well as the Jews who blaspheme him. And if unbelief be so fearful and damnable a sin, shall we not be afraid to live in it? Use to, above all graces, set faith to work on Christ, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, John three fifteen. 15. Above all, taking the shield of faith, Ephesians six sixteen. 16. Say, as Queen Esther, I will go in unto the king, and if I perish, I perish. She had nothing to encourage her. She ventured against law, yet the golden scepter was held forth to her. We have promises to encourage our faith. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, John six thirty seven. Let us then advance faith by a holy recumbency on Christ's merits. Christ's blood will not justify without believing. They are both put together in the text, Faith in His Blood. The blood of God without faith in Christ will not save. Christ's sufferings are the plaster to heal a sin sick soul, but this plaster must be applied by faith. It is not money in a rich man's hand, though offered to us, that will enrich us unless we receive it. So Christ's virtues or benefits will do us no good unless we receive them by the hand of faith. Above all graces set faith on work. It is a faith most acceptable to God upon many accounts. Firstly, because it is a God-exalting grace. It glorifies God. Abraham was strong in faith, giving glory to God, Romans 6:20. To believe that there is more mercy in God and merit in Christ than sin in us, and that Christ has answered all the demands of the law, and that His blood has fully satisfied for us, is in a high degree to honor God. Faith in the Mediator brings more glory to God than martyrdom or the most heroic act of obedience. Faith in Christ is acceptable to God, secondly, because it is a self-denying grace. It makes a man go out of himself, renounce all self-righteousness, and wholly rely on Christ for justification. It is very humble. It confesses its own indigence and lives wholly upon Christ. As the bee sucks sweetness from the flower, so faith sucks all its strength and comfort from Christ. Thirdly, faith is a grace acceptable to God, because by faith we present a righteousness to Him which best pleases Him. We bring the righteousness of Christ into court, which is called the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5.21. To bring Christ's righteousness is to bring Benjamin with us. A believer may say, Lord, it is not the righteousness of Adam or of the angels, but of Christ, who is God-man, that I bring before thee. The Lord cannot but smell a sweet savor in Christ's righteousness. Use 3. Let us try our faith. There is something that looks like faith and is not. Pliny says there is a Cyprian stone which is in color like a diamond, but it is not of the right kind. So there is a spurious faith in the world. Some plants have the same leaf with others, but the herbalist can distinguish them by the root and taste. So something may look like true faith, but it may be distinguished in several ways. Firstly, true faith is grounded upon knowledge. Knowledge carries the torch before faith. There is a knowledge of Christ's orient excellencies, Philippians 3.8. He is made up of all love and beauty. True faith is a judicious, intelligent grace. It knows whom it believes and why it believes. Faith is seated as well in the understanding as in the will. It has an eye to see Christ as well as a wing to fly to Him. Such, therefore, as are veiled in ignorance, or have only an implicit faith to believe as the church believes, have no true and genuine faith. Secondly, faith lives in a broken heart. The Father cried out with tears, Lord, I believe, Mark 9:24. True faith is always in a heart bruised for sin. They, therefore, whose hearts were never touched for sin, have no faith if a physician should tell us there was a herb that would help us against all infections but it always grows in a watery place if we should see a herb like it in color leaf smell blossom but growing upon a rock we should conclude that it was the wrong herb so saving faith always grows in a heart humbled for sin in a weeping eye and a tearful conscience if therefore there be a show of faith but it grows upon the rock of a hard impenitent heart it is not the true faith Thirdly, true faith is at first nothing but an embryo. It is minute and small. It is full of doubts, temptations, fears. It begins in weakness. It is like the smoking flax, Matthew twelve twenty. It smokes with desires, but does not flame with comfort. It is at first so small that it is scarce discernible. They who at the first dash have a strong persuasion that Christ is theirs, who leap out of sin into assurance, have a false and spurious faith. The faith which comes to its full stature on its birthday is a monster. The seed that sprung up suddenly withered, Matthew 13, 5, and 6. Fourthly, faith is a refining grace. It consecrates and purifies. Moral virtue may wash the outside, but faith washes the inside. Purifying their hearts by faith, Acts 15, 9. Faith makes the heart a temple with this inscription, Holiness to the Lord. They whose hearts have legions of lust in them were never acquainted with the true faith. For one to say he has faith and yet live in sin, as if one should say he was in health when his vitals are perished. Faith is a virgin grace. It is joined with sanctity, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. 1 Timothy 3, nine the jewel of faith is always put in the cabinet of a pure conscience. The woman that touched Christ by faith fetched a healing and cleansing virtue from Him. Fifthly, true faith is obediential. The obedience of faith, Romans 16, 26. Faith melts our will into the will of God. If God commands duty, Though cross to flesh and blood, faith obeys. By faith Abraham obeyed. Hebrews 11.8 It not only believes the promise, but obeys the command. It is not having a speculative knowledge that will evidence you to be believers. The devil has knowledge. But that which makes him a devil is that he has no obedience. Sixthly, true faith is increasing from faith to faith, that is, from one degree of faith to another, Romans 1.17. Faith does not lie in the heart as a stone in the earth, but as seed that grows. Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Christ, but was afraid to confess him. Afterwards, he went boldly to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, John 19.38. A Christian's increase in faith is known two ways, by steadfastness... He is a pillar in the temple of God, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, Colossians 2, 7. Unbelievers are skeptics in religion. They are unsettled. They question every truth. But when faith is on the increasing hand, it doth strengthen the spirit. It corroborates a Christian. He is able to prove his principles. He holds no more than he will die for. As that martyr woman said, I cannot dispute for Christ but I can burn for him. An increasing faith is not like a ship in the midst of the sea that fluctuates and is tossed upon the waves, but like a ship at anchor, which is firm and steadfast. A Christian's faith increases and is known also, not just by steadfastness, but by strength. He can do that now, which he could not do before. When one is man-grown, he can do that which he was not able to do when he was a child. He can carry a heavier burden. So a growing Christian can bear crosses with more patience. Question, but I fear, I have no faith, it is so weak. If you have faith, though it be but in its infancy, be not discouraged. For first, a little faith is faith, as a spark of fire is fire. Second, a weak faith may lay hold on a strong Christ as a weak hand can tie the knot in marriage as well as a strong one. She, in the gospel, who but touched Christ, fetched virtue from him. Three, the promises are not made to strong faith, but to true faith. The promise does not say, He who has a giant faith, who can believe God's love through um, a frown, who can rejoice in affliction, who can work wonders, remove mountains, stop the mouth of lions, shall be saved. But whosoever believes, be his faith never so small. A reed is but weak, especially when it is bruised. Yet a promise is made to it. A bruised reed shall he not break. Matthew 12.20 For A weak faith may be fruitful. Weakest things multiply most. The vine is a weak plant, but it is fruitful. The thief on the cross, who was newly converted, what, uh, was but weak in grace. But how many precious clusters grew upon that tender plant? He chided his fellow thief. Dost thou not fear God? Luke twenty-three forty. He judged himself. We indeed suffer justly. He believed in Christ when he said, Lord. He made a heavenly prayer. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Weak Christians may have strong affections. How strong is the first love which is after the first planting of faith? Five, the weakest believer is a member of Christ as well as the strongest, and the weakest member of the body mystic shall not perish. Christ will cut off rotten members but not weak members. Therefore, Christian, be not discouraged. God, who would have us receive them that are weak in faith, will not himself refuse them. Romans 14, 1 Continuing in our reading of Thomas Watson's The Ten Commandments, Part 4, The Way of Salvation, Part 2 of Part 4, Repentance Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life, Acts eleven eighteen. Repentance seems to be a bitter pill to take, but it is to purge out the bad humor of sin by some antinomian spirits it is cried down as a legal doctrine but Christ himself preached it from that time jesus began to preach and to say repent etc matthew 4:17 in his last farewell when he was ascending to heaven he commanded that repentance should be preached in his name luke 24:47 repentance is a pure gospel grace The covenant of works would not admit of repentance. It cursed all that could not perform perfect and personal obedience, Galatians 3.10. Repentance comes in by the gospel. It is the fruit of Christ's purchase that repenting sinners shall be saved. It is wrought by the ministry of the gospel while it sets before our eyes Christ crucified. It is not arbitrary, but necessary. There is no being saved without repentance except ye repent ye shall all likewise perish luke 13:3 we may be thankful to god that he has left us this plank after shipwreck first i shall show the counterfeits of repentance firstly natural softness and tenderness of spirit some have a tender affection arising from their constitution whereby they are apt to weep and relent when they see any object of pity these are not repenting tears For many weep to see another's misery who cannot weep at their own sin. Secondly, legal terrors. A man who has lived in a course of sin at last is made sensible. He sees hell ready to devour him and is filled with anguish and horror. But after a while the tempest of conscience is blown over and he is quiet. He then concludes he is a true penitent because he has felt some bitterness in sin. But this is not repentance. Judas had some trouble of mind. If anguish and trouble were sufficient for repentance, then the damned would be most penitent, for they are most in anguish of mind. There may be trouble of mind where there is no grieving for the offense against God. Thirdly, a slight superficial sorrow. When God's hand lies heavy upon a man, as when he is sick or lame, he may vent a sigh or tear and say, "'Lord, have mercy!' Yet this is not true repentance. Ahab did more than all this. He rent his clothes and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went softly, First Kings twenty one twenty seven. His clothes were rent, but not his heart. The eye may be watery and the heart flinty. An apricot may be soft without, but it has a hard pit within. Fourthly, good motions rising in the heart. Every good motion is not repentance. Some think if they have motions in their hearts to break off their sins and become religious, it is repentance. As the devil may stir up bad motions in the godly, so the Spirit of God may stir up good motions in the wicked. Herod had many good thoughts and inclinations stirred up in him by John Baptist's preaching, yet he did not truly repent, for he still lived in sin. Fifthly, vows and resolutions. What vows and solemn protestations do some make in their sickness that if God should recover them, they will be new men, but afterwards they are as bad as ever? Thou saidst, I will not transgress. Here was a resolution, but for all this she ran after her idols. Under every green tree thou wanderest, playing the harlot. Jeremiah 2.20 Sixthly, leaving off some gross sin. First, a man may leave off some sins and keep others. Herod reformed many things that were amiss, but kept his Herodias. Second, an old sin may be left to entertain a new one. A man may leave off riot and prodigality and turn covetousness, which is merely to exchange one sin for another. These are the counterfeits of repentance. Now, if you find that yours is a counterfeit repentance, and you have not repented aright, mend what you have done amiss, As in the body, if a bone be set wrong, the surgeon has no way but to break it again and set it aright. So you must do by repentance. If you have not repented aright, you must have your heart broken again in a godly manner and be more deeply afflicted for sin than ever. Second, this brings me to show wherein repentance consists. It consists in two things, humiliation and transformation. First, humiliation, if their uncircumcised hearts be humbled, Leviticus 26.41. There is, as the schoolmen say, a twofold humiliation, or breaking of the heart. First, attrition, as when a rock is broken in pieces. This is done by the law, which is a hammer to break the heart. Second, contrition as when ice is melted into water. This is done by the gospel, which is as a fire to melt the heart. Jeremiah 23.9 The sense of abused kindness causes contrition. Secondly, transformation or change. Be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12.2 Repentance works a change in the whole man. As when wine is put into a glass of water, it runs into every part of the water and changes the color and taste of the water, so true repentance does not rest in one part, but diffuses and spreads itself into every part. First, repentance causes a change in the mind. Before, a man liked sin well, and said in defense of it as Jonah, I do well to be angry, Jonah 4.9, or I did well to swear and break the Sabbath. When he becomes penitent, his judgment is changed. He looks upon sin as the greatest evil. The Greek word for repentance signifies after-wisdom. When, having seen how deformed and damnable a thing sin is, we change our mind. Paul, before conversion, verily thought he ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus. Acts 26.9 But when he became a penitent, he was of another mind. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, 8 Repentance causes a change of judgment. Second, repentance causes a change in the affections which move under the will as the commander-in-chief. It metamorphoses the affections. Repentance turns rejoicing in sin into sorrowing for sin. It turns boldness in sin into holy shame. Repentance turns the love of sin into hatred. As Amnon hated Tamar b- more than ever, he loved her. 2 Samuel thirteen fifteen. So the true penitent hates sin more than ever, he loved it. I hate every false way psalms thirdly repentance works change in the life though repentance begins at the heart it does not rest there but goes into the life it begins at the heart oh jerusalem wash thy heart jeremiah four fourteen. if the spring be corrupt no pure stream can run from it but though repentance begins at the heart it does not rest there but changes the life What a change did repentance make in Paul. It changed a persecutor into a preacher. What a change did it make in the jailer, Acts 16.33. He took Paul and Silas and washed their stripes and set meat before them. What a change did it make in Mary Magdalene. She who before kissed her lovers with wanton embraces now kisses Christ's feet. She that used to curl her hair and dress it with costly jewels now makes it a towel to wipe Christ's feet. Her eyes that used to sparkle with lust and with impure glances to entice her lovers now become fountains of tears to wash her Savior's feet. Her tongue that used to speak vainly and loosely now an instrument set in tune to praise God. This change of life has two things in it. First... A breaking off sin. Break off thy sins by righteousness, Daniel four twenty seven. This breaking off sin must have three qualifications. First, it must be universal. Breaking off all sin. One disease may kill as well as more. One sin lived in may damn as well as more. The real penitent breaks off secret, gainful, habitual sins. He takes the sacrificing knife of mortification and runs it through the heart of his dearest lusts. Second, breaking off sin must be sincere. It must not be out of fear, but upon spiritual grounds, as from antipathy and disgust and the principle of love to God. If sin had not such evil effects, a true penitent would forsake it out of love to God. The best way to separate things that are frozen is by fire. When sin and the heart are frozen together, the best way to separate them is by the fire of love. Shall I sin against a gracious Father and abuse that love which pardons me? Third, the breaking off sin must be perpetual, so as never to have to do with sin anymore. What have I to do anymore with idols? Hosea 14.8 Repentance is a spiritual divorce which must be till death. Change of life, secondly, has in it a returning unto the Lord. It is called repentance towards god acts twenty twenty one it is not enough when we repent to leave old sins, but we must engage in God's service, as when the wind leaves the west, it turns into a contrary corner. The repenting prodigal not only left his harlots but arose and went to his father luke fifteen eighteen in true repentance, the heart points directly to God as the needle to the north pole use. Let us all set upon this great work of repentance. Let us repent sincerely and speedily. Let us repent of all our sins, our pride, rash, anger, unbelief. Without repentance, no remission. It is not consistent with the holiness of God's nature to pardon a sinner while he's in the act of rebellion. Oh, meet God not with weapons, but with tears in your eyes. To stir you up to a melting penitent frame... First, consider what there is in sin that you should continue in the practice of it. It is the accursed thing, Joshua 7.11. It is the spirits of mischief distilled. It defiles the soul's glory. It is like a stain to beauty. It is compared to a plague sore, 1 Kings 8.38. Nothing so changes one's glory into shame as sin. Without repentance, sin tends to final damnation. The moment of sin passes, the guilt remains. Sin at first shows its color in the glass, but afterwards it bites like a serpent. Those locusts in Revelation 9-7 are an emblem of sin. On their heads were crowns like gold, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and there were stings in their tails. Sin unrepented of ends in a tragedy. It has the devil for its father, shame for its companion, and death for its wages. Romans 6.23 What is there in sin, then, that men should continue in it? Say not, it is sweet, who would desire the pleasure which kills? Secondly, repentance is very pleasing to God. No sacrifice like a broken heart, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise psalms. Augustine caused this sentence to be written over his bed when he was sick. When the widow brought empty vessels to Elisha the oil was poured into them, second Kings four six. Bring God the broken vessel of a contrite heart, and he will pour in the oil of mercy. Repenting tears are the joy of God and of angels Luke fifteen seven. Doves delight to be about the waters, and surely God's spirit who once descended in the likeness of a dove, takes great delight in the waters of repentance. Mary stood at Jesus' feet weeping. Luke 7.38 She brought two things to Christ, tears and ointment. But her tears were more precious to Christ than her ointment. Thirdly, repentance ushers in pardon. Therefore they are joined together. Repentance and remission. Luke 24.47 Pardon of sin is the richest blessing. It is enough to make a sick man well. The inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. Isaiah 33:24. Pardon settles upon us the richer charter of the promises. Pardoning mercy is the sauce that makes all the other mercies relish the sweeter. It sweetens our health riches, and honor. David had a crown of pure gold set upon his head in the Psalms. That which David most blessed God for was not that God had set a crown of gold upon his head, but that he had set a crown of mercy upon his head, who crowneth thee with mercies. What was this crown of mercy? You may see it in verse 3 of Psalm 103, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. David more rejoiced that he was crowned with forgiveness than that he wore a crown of pure gold. Now what is it that makes the way for pardon of sin but repentance? When David's soul was humbled and broken, the prophet Nathan brought him good news. The Lord hath put away thy sin, 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. But, you may ask, my sins are so great that if I should repent, God would not pardon them. God will not go from His promise. Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, Jeremiah 3.12. If thy sins are as rocks, yet upon thy repentance the sea of God's mercy can drown them. Wash you, make you clean, Isaiah 1.16. Wash in the laver of repentance. Come now, and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Verse eighteen. Manasseh, a crimson sinner, but when that king humbled himself greatly, the golden scepter of mercy was held for. When his head was a fountain to weep for sin, Christ's side was a fountain to wash away his sin. It is not the greatness of sin, but impenitence that destroys. The Jews who had a hand in crucifying Christ upon their repentance found the blood they had shed was a sovereign balm to heal them. When the prodigal came home to his father, he had the robe and the ring put upon him, and his father kissed him. Luke 15:20 20 and 22. If you break off your sins, God will become a friend to you. All that is in God shall be yours. His power shall be yours to help you. His wisdom shall be yours to counsel you. His spirit shall be yours to sanctify you. His promises shall be yours to comfort you. His angels shall be yours to guard you. His mercy shall be yours to save you. Fourthly, there is much sweetness in repenting tears. The soul is never more enlarged and inwardly delighted than when it can melt kindly for sin. Weeping days are festival days. The Hebrew word to repent, nicham, signifies to take comfort. Your sorrow shall be turned into joy, John sixteen twenty. Christ turns the water of tears into wine. David, who was the great mourner in Israel, was the sweet singer. And the joy which a true penitent finds is a pre-libation and foretaste of the joy of paradise. The wicked man's joy turns to sadness, the penitent's sadness turns to joy. Though repentance seems at first to be thorny and bitter, yet of this thorn a Christian gathers grapes, all which considerations may open a vein of godly sorrow in our souls, that we may both weep for sin and turn from it. If ever God restores comfort, it is to his mourners. Isaiah 57.18 When we have wept, let us look up to Christ's blood for pardon. Say as that holy man, Lord, wash my tears in thy blood. We drop sin with our tears and need Christ's blood to wash them. This repentance must not be for a few days only, like the mourning for a friend, which is soon over, but it must be the work of our lives. The issue of godly sorrow must not be stopped till death. After sin is pardoned, we must repent, we must run afresh upon the score. We sin daily, therefore, must repent daily. Some shed a few tears for sin, and when, like the widow's oil, they have run a while, they cease. Many, if the bandage of repentance begin to smart a little, pluck it off, whereas the bandage of repentance must still lie on and not be picked off till death, when, as all other tears... So these of godly sorrow shall be wiped away. Question: What shall we do to obtain a penitential frame of heart? Seek to God for it. It is His promise to give a heart of flesh, Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, and to pour on us a spirit of mourning, Zechariah twelve ten. Beg God's Holy Spirit. He causeth His wind to blow and the waters flow. From the Psalms, when the wind of God's Spirit blows upon us then the waters of repentant tears will flow from us. Part 3. The Word The third way to escape the wrath and curse of God and obtain the benefit of redemption by Christ is the diligent use of ordinances, in particular, the Word, Sacraments, and Prayer. I begin with the first of these ordinances, the word which effectually worketh in you that believe, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. What is meant by the words working effectually, you ask? The word of God is said to work effectually when it has the good effect upon us for which it was appointed by God, when it works powerful illumination and thorough reformation, to open their eyes and turn them from the power of Satan unto God, Acts uh, 26.18. The opening of their eyes denotes illumination, and turning them from Satan to God denotes reformation. Question, how is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? This question consists of two branches. How may the word be read effectually, that we may so read the word that it may conduce effectually to our salvation? First, let us have a reverend esteem of every part of canonical scripture. More to be desired are they than gold from the Psalms. Value the book of God above all other books. It is a golden epistle indicted by the Holy Ghost and sent us from heaven. More particularly to raise our esteem, the scripture is a spiritual glass to dress our souls by. It shows us more than we can see by the light of natural conscience. This may discover gross sins, but the mirror of the word shows us heart sins, vain thoughts, unbelief, etc. It not only shows us our spots, but washes them away. The scripture is a magazine out of which we may fetch spiritual artillery to fight against Satan. When our Savior was tempted by the devil, he fetched armor and weapons from scripture. It is written, Matthew 4, 4 and 7, The holy scripture is a panacea, or universal medicine for the soul. It gives a recipe to cure deadness of heart, pride, infidelity. It is a physic garden where me, we may gather an herb or antidote to expel the poison of sin. The leaves of scripture, like the leaves of the tree of life, are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22.2 Should not this cause a reverential esteem of the word? Second, if we would have the written word effectual to our souls, let us peruse it with intenseness of mind. Search the scriptures, John 5.39. The Greek word, erunate signifies to search as for a vein of silver. The Bereans search the scriptures daily, Acts 17.11. The word search in the Greek signifies to make a curious and critical search. Apollos was mighty in the Scriptures, Acts 18.24. Some gallop over a chapter in haste and get no good by it. If we would have the word effectual and saving, we must mind and observe every passage of Scripture, that we may be diligent in the perusal of Scripture, consider that the word written is the only standard of conduct, the rule and platform by which we are to square our lives." It contains in it all things needful to salvation, what duties we are to do and what sins we are to avoid. God gave Moses a pattern how he would have the tabernacle made, and he was to go exactly according to that pattern. Exodus 25.9 The Word is the pattern God has given us in writing for modeling our lives. How careful, therefore, should we be in pursuing and looking over this pattern? As the written Word is our pattern, so it will be our judge. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him on the last day, John 12:48. We read of the opening of the books, Revelation 20, verse 12. One book which God will open is the book of the Scripture, and will judge men out of it. He will say, Have you lived according to the rule of this word? The word has a double work, to teach and to judge. Thirdly, if we would have the written word effectual, we must bring faith to the reading of it. Believe it to be the word of the eternal Jehovah. It comes with authority and shows its commission from heaven. Thus saith the Lord. It is of divine inspiration, 2 Timothy 3.16. The oracles of Scripture must be surer to us than a voice from heaven, 2 Peter 1.18-19. Unbelief enervates the virtue of Scripture and renders it ineffectual. First men question the truth of the Scripture, then fall away from it. Fourthly, if we would have the written word effectual to salvation, we must delight in it as our spiritual cordial. Thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Jeremiah 15.16 All true solid comfort is fetched out of the word. The word, as Chrysostom says, is a spiritual garden, and the promises are the fragrant flowers or spices in this garden. How should we delight to walk among these beds of spices? Is it not a comfort in all dubious, perplexed cases to have a counselor to advise us? Thy testimonies are my counselors from the Psalms. Is it not a comfort to find our evidences for heaven? And where should we find them but in the word? First Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. The word written is a sovereign elixir, or comfort, in an hour of distress. This is my comfort in my affliction, for thy word... Hath quickened me. Again from the 119th Psalm. It can turn all our water into wine. How should we take a great complacence and delight in the word? They only who come to scripture with delight go from it with success. Fifthly, if we would have the scripture effectual and saving, we must be sure when we have read the word to hide it in our hearts. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. The word locked up in the heart is a preservative against sin. Why did David hide the word in his heart? That I might not sin against thee. As one would carry an antidote about him when he comes near a place infected, so David carried the word in his heart as a sacred antidote to preserve him from the infection of sin. When the sap is hid in the root, it makes the branches fruitful. When the seed is hid in the ground, the corn springs up. So when the word is hid in the heart, it brings forth good fruit. Sixthly, if we would have the written word effectual, let us labor not only to have the light of it in our heads, but its power in our hearts. Let us endeavor to have it copied out and written a second time in our hearts. The law of his God is in his heart, from the Psalms. The scripture says, be clothed with humility, 1 Peter 5, 5. Let us be low and humble in our eyes. The Word calls for sanctity. Let us labor to partake of the divine nature and to have something conceived in us which is of the Holy Ghost, Second Peter 1, four. When the Word is thus copied out into our hearts, and we are changed into its similitude, it is made effectual to us and becomes a savor of life. Seventhly, when we read the Holy Scriptures, let us look up to God for a blessing, Let us beg the spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may see the deep things of God. Ephesians 1.17, 1 Corinthians 2.10 Pray, God, that the same spirit that wrote the scripture would enable us to understand it. Pray that God would give us the savor of his knowledge, that we may relish a sweetness in the word we read. 2 Corinthians 2.14 David tasted it as sweeter than the honeycomb. Let us pray that God would not only give us his word as a rule of holiness, but his grace as a principle of holiness. Question. How may we hear the word that it may be effectual and saving to our souls? First, give great attention to the word preached. Let nothing pass without taking special notice of it. All the people were very attentive to hear him. Luke 19.48 They hung upon his lips. Lydia, a seller of purple which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, as that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Acts 16.14 Give attention to the word as to a matter of life and death. For this purpose have a care to banish vain, impertinent thoughts which will distract you and take you off from the work in hand. These fowls will be coming to the sacrifice, therefore we must drive them away. Genesis 15.11 An archer may take a right aim, but if one stand at his elbow and jog him when he's going to shoot, he will not hit the mark. Christians may have good aims in hearing, but take heed of impertinent thoughts which will jog and hinder you in God's service. Banish dullness. The devil gives many hearers a sleepy sop, so that they cannot keep their eyes open at sermon. They eat so much on the Lord's day that they're more fit for the pillow and couch than the temple. Frequent and customary sleeping at a sermon shows high contempt and irreverence of the ordinance. It gives a bad example to others. It makes your sincerity to be called into question. It is the devil's nap time. While men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares. Matthew thirteen twenty five. Oh, shake off drowsiness as Paul shook off the viper. Be serious and attentive in hearing the word, for it is not a vain thing for you, it is your life, Deuteronomy thirty-two forty-seven. When people do not mind what God speaks to them in his word, God as little minds what they say to him in prayer. Second, if you would have the word preached effectual to you, come with a holy appetite for the word, 1 Peter 2-2. The thirsting soul is the thriving soul. In nature one may have an appetite and no digestion, but it is not so in religion. Where there is a great appetite for the word, there is, for the most part, good digestion. Come with hungerings of soul after the word, and desire it, that it may not only please you, but profit you. Look not at the garnishing of the dish more than at the meat, at eloquence and rhetoric more than solid matter. It argues both a wanton palate and surfeited stomach to feed on salads and dainties, rather than on wholesome food. Third, if you would have the preaching of the word effectual, come to it with tenderness upon your heart, because thy word, thy heart, was tender. First Chronicles 22.5 If we preach to hard hearts, it's like shooting against a brass wall. The word does not enter. It is like setting a gold seal upon marble, which takes no impression. Oh, come to the word preached with a melting frame of heart. It is the melting wax that receives the stamp of the seal. So, when the heart is in a melting frame, it will better receive the stamp of the preached word. When Paul's heart was melted and broken for sin, he cried, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Acts 9.6 Come not hither with hard hearts. Who can expect to crop when the seed is sown upon stony ground? Fourth, if you would have the word effectual, receive it with meekness. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. James 1.21 meekness is a submissive frame of heart to the word, a willingness to hear the counsels and reproofs of the word. Contrary to this meekness is a fierceness of spirit, whereby men are ready to rise up in rage against the word. Proud men and guilty cannot endure to hear of their faults, Proud Herod put John in prison Mark six seventeen. The guilty Jews being told of their crucifying Christ stoned Stephen Acts seven hundred fifty nine. To tell men of sin is to hold a glass to one that is deformed, who cannot endure to see his own face. Contrary to meekness is stubbornness of heart whereby men are resolved to hold fast their sins. Let the scripture say what it will. We will burn incense unto the queen of heaven, Jeremiah. 60, 40, 4, 17. Oh, take heed of this. If you would have the word preached effectually, lay aside fierceness and stubbornness. Receive the word with meekness. By meekness the word preached comes to be ingrafted, As a good scion that's grafted in a bad stock changes the nature of the fruit and makes it taste sweet. So when the word is ingrafted into the soul, it sanctifies it and makes it bring forth the sweet fruit